Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. Life is finally starting to get back to a little bit of normalcy. I started back to work. I am totally going to miss being able to stay home with my animals all day and work on the KSOM mini farm, but got to pay the bills, I guess, right? I have a really crazy story for you today. Totally wild, super interesting. But first, I have a shout out. Stephanie from Cortland, New York, sent me a really great email with a question that I wanted to share with everybody. And I'm going to answer her on the show today. So Stephanie writes, I love listening. And I was thinking as I was listening and running in the snow, how do you prepare your research for the podcast? You don't seem to be reading, yet you have a ton of facts and chronological stories each week. It's a lot of information to talk through each week with no co-host for prompting or questions. I'm a geek. Running provides me too much time to think. Yeah, I'm a geek too, Stephanie. And I'm only running if something's chasing me. So props to you for getting out there and staying active. To answer Stephanie's question, no, I do not use a script. I tried reading from a script early on, and I just did not like the way it sounded. So now I kind of just go from notes. Uh, throughout my research, I scribble down notes, things that I want to remember to talk about, specifics like names and dates that I wouldn't be able to remember off the top of my head. And then from there, I just go from memory and pepper in my own thoughts and opinions. As far as my research goes, I use at least three sources just so I can do my fact checking. I like to use books. Uh, they seem to have the most comprehensive information. And I prefer audiobooks so I can listen while I'm at work or doing other things. I use internet articles, documentaries, and sometimes other podcasts. I have a few podcasts that I listen to regularly, and they're very well researched. So I will listen to them and then go check out their sources. I always list my references in the show notes. So if you ever want to learn more about a topic or check my facts, just go to the show notes and I put links in there as much as possible. So you can just click and go right to them. So thank you to awesome Keystoner Stephanie for your great question and for giving me a chance to talk about it on the show. If anyone else has questions or comments, feel free to get a hold of me. Steph at KSOM the pod. Go join the KSOM Keystoners Facebook group. Uh, like the Keystone State of Mind page on Facebook. I also am on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat at Keystone underscore the pod. The last few weeks, I have been calling out to people in specific cities to get a hold of me and tell me about your town. So this week, I am calling on listeners from Hagerstown, Maryland. I know I have a few listeners there. If you've got something cool to tell me about your town or yourself, questions or comments, anything about the show, reach out, email me, get me on social media.
keep up those ratings and reviews wherever you listen. If your podcast platform allows for ratings and reviews, please give the show a positive review and a five-star rating. It helps me out so much. Okay, so now there's only one more thing to do before I get into today's story. Let's get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light while I tell you today's story. And if I'm being honest, I've been in a Keystone State of Mind for a couple hours now. Whatever, moving on. On August 28th, 2003, at about 1.30 p.m., a phone call came in to the Mamma Mia's Pizzeria in Erie, Pennsylvania. The caller asked to order two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas to be delivered to 8631 Peach Street. The delivery driver, a man named Brian Wells, took the delivery order on his way home. It was the end of his shift. He left Mama Mia's with the pizzas at about 2 p.m. By 3.30 that afternoon, Brian Wells would be dead. Before we find out how all this happened, let's talk a little bit about Brian Wells himself. Brian was born November 15, 1956, to parents Rose and Harold Wells. He dropped out of high school at age 16 and kind of just did odd jobs for most of his life. He had been working at the Mamma Mia's Pizzeria for 10 years at the time of his death as a delivery driver. Brian was a simple guy. He rented a one-bedroom apartment. He'd never been married, never had any kids, and as far as I can tell, never really had a serious relationship. He had three cats that he adored, and the only time that he ever called in sick or took an unscheduled day off at Mamma Mia's was when one of his cats died. His landlord described him as just a nice, quiet, regular guy. He kept to himself. He was kind of a loner. He didn't have a lot of guests or a lot of friends coming in and out of his house. He wasn't a man of means, but he had everything he needed, and he was quite content in his life. Okay, so let's go back to August 28th, 2003. He left Mamma Mia's around 2 o'clock, and he went to the Peach Street address to deliver the pizzas. This address, though, did not belong to a home. It led him up a dirt road to a television transmission tower. And here's where shit starts to get real crazy. When he got to this isolated location, he was met by a group of people who accosted him and strapped a bomb to his neck. To cover up the bomb, they put an oversized t-shirt on him that said guess across the front, like the brand guess, but the word was written in marker. It wasn't an actual guess brand t-shirt. 
They also gave him a modified shotgun. It was in the shape of a cane. So it's like a cane gun. Although it really looked like a gun. I'll share a picture of the gun and the t-shirt. I'll do my best to share some photographs here because it's ridiculous. Seriously, a cane gun? Who do these people think they are, 007? In addition to the ridiculous cane gun, they also gave him a nine-page list of instructions for what he was supposed to do next. The first item on this to-do list was to rob the PNC Bank that was also on Peach Street in Erie. This incident would become known as the Collar Bomb Heist, or sometimes the Pizza Bomb Heist. So, Brian followed his instructions. Wearing this collar bomb, he walked into the PNC Bank and handed the teller a note. I say a note, but it was more like a letter. It was a very long list of instructions for the bank personnel as well. I'm going to read parts of this letter. I can't read the whole thing because it's seriously that long. It starts out addressing the receptionist. Do not cause panic or many people will be killed. Sounding any alarm will interrupt this action and guarantee injuries and death. Involving authorities at this point will get this hostage and other people killed. The note gives the bank personnel 15 minutes to comply with their demands. That's kind of a long amount of time for a bank robbery, 15 minutes. And this next part of the letter cracks me up. They actually give two different options. Demand A is $150,000 in 50s and 20s only, 50s preferred. This will only prevent the bomb being exploded, but it will not prevent retaliation on the bank employees later. And they actually write out these dollar amounts like a check. They'll write it in number form and then in word form. Whatever. Option B, $250,000, 100,000 in 100s will be accepted. And this will prevent both the bomb being exploded and the retaliation to the bank employees later. And they're only supposed to use option A if there's not enough money available for option B. The bottom of the letter says, detailed instructions follow on the next page. There's already some pretty detailed instructions on this page. I mean, 15 minutes, they're gonna need all that time to read through the instructions. And the very last warning they have is, act now, think later, or you will die. So as the bank teller is reading through this letter and alerting the bank manager, Brian Wells is very calmly just hanging out in the bank. He actually let the other customers leave and he grabbed a dum-dum lollipop out of the bowl and started eating it. Kind of weird. He never did have to use his cane gun. Everything went along smooth until... They only had $8,702 to give him. So nowhere near option A or option B of $150,000 or $250,000.
he took the money in a black bag and set off to follow the second instruction on the list. His next assignment was to go to the McDonald's that actually shared a parking lot with the PNC Bank. And there he was going to find a note to tell him what to do next. So now he's on the scavenger hunt. He was supposed to go to numerous locations where there would be keys to unlock the bomb that is on his neck. And that will make more sense in a minute when I talk about the bomb itself. So Brian went to McDonald's and there was supposed to be a coffee can like in the little garden area that's near the drive through. And it's funny, in the letter, they actually draw a picture of the sign that this can was under. I'll share photos of these letters because it's just wild. You got to see them. But in the meantime, the bank personnel obviously called police and they weren't far away. So they show up on the scene and there they find Brian rummaging around under the sign looking for a coffee can with his next instructions. You know who else wasn't far away? The press. They got wind of it very quickly as well. So all of this interaction between Brian and the police is actually on video. News media outlets were there with their cameras recording the whole thing. So Brian tells the cops that when he went to deliver that pizza to the TV transmission tower, a group of black men beat him up and held him down and strapped this bomb to his neck and told him to go rob the bank. And he's telling him, guys, this bomb is going to go off. I'm not lying. You need to call my boss. He will corroborate my story. The police did call the bomb squad right away, but they didn't really believe it was a real bomb. They thought it was a hoax. But the video of this does show that the cops all kept their distance and did not go near him. Before long, the bomb started beeping. And as the beeping got faster and faster, Brian obviously got more and more panicked. And right there on camera, it exploded and killed Brian almost instantly. The bomb squad showed up three minutes later. The bomb squad could have been there sooner, but police shut down all the streets around the bank after the robbery. So the bomb squad got stuck in traffic. My main source for this episode is Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. And that's a Netflix original documentary series. And on this show, they actually show the video of the bomb exploding and Brian being killed. The explosion caused an injury on Brian's chest that was eight inches by 10 inches and then one inch deep. So it basically just blew a huge hole in his chest. When Brian's body was taken to the medical examiner's office, Everybody was still really scared to be messing around with this bomb. They didn't know if it could detonate again, possibly. And also they wanted to maintain the integrity of this bomb so that they could investigate it properly. So what they decided to do was cut Brian's head off to get the bomb off in one piece. When they were 
able to examine the device. They found that it held two separate pipe bombs and they were each set with kitchen timers separately. There was also a digital timer and there were some other kind of decoy wires and timers and things to throw police off. And apparently that's kind of common with bombs. There's usually decoy stuff. So the bomb squad technicians won't know exactly what to do right away. The locking mechanism was basically like a great big handcuff. It was ratcheted like that. So once it was locked onto Brian's neck, the only way to get it off would be with a series of keys and they had to be used in the correct order. And so that was the scavenger hunt that Brian was set on was to find these keys so that he could get this off his neck before it killed him. But what police determined was that there wasn't enough time. They actually did follow the scavenger hunt and went to these locations. And there just wasn't enough time. The bomb would have went off. Brian was going to be killed no matter what. There was nothing he was going to be able to do. And when police did go to these other locations on the scavenger hunt, there was nothing there. So either one, nothing had ever been there. Two, the people responsible went and picked them up before the cops could get there. Or three, they were waiting to place the items right before Brian got there. So now police had some evidence to work with. They had the bomb and the locking mechanism, and they had the letters. Now, of course, there was no usable fingerprints or DNA on these things. They also had Brian's statement before he died that he was accosted by a group of black men. So they were looking into that. And there was actually a lot of agencies on this case. There's the FBI, the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosive Devices. There's the Pennsylvania State Police, and there's the local Erie Police. So early on, they had to make a decision, like, who is going to take the lead here? And it was determined that the FBI would take the lead on the investigation. After getting nowhere with the physical evidence initially, the FBI decided to bring in their behavior analysis unit, the BAU. If you're like me and a fan of the TV show Criminal Minds, you know exactly who these people are. I totally imagined Hotch and Derek Morgan and Emily Prentice, depending on which season you're watching, showing up to Erie, getting the skinny on these people. Grab your go bag, wheels up in 20. Sorry, I've been binging Criminal Minds lately. But the BAU did really come up with some good insights. Their profile of the bomb maker was an older white male. He lived alone and was handy at creating things, obviously, because he fabricated the bomb and the locking mechanism and the cane gun. They profiled him to be a hoarder. And someone who was very intelligent, but also thought he was smarter than everyone else. Now, this profile 
did not jive with what Brian Wells had told police, that it was a group of black men. This didn't surprise police, though, because they didn't believe him ever from the beginning. They never believed this group of black men's story. When police dug deeper into Brian Wells' life, they found that he really liked to gamble, and he also had a history of visiting sex workers. As a matter of fact, they found a list in his home of these sex workers' names and phone numbers. So the FBI is working the case, and about a month later, on September 21st, 2003, a seemingly unrelated 911 call came in. A man named Bill Rothstein, who was 59 years old, called police to tell them that there was a dead body in his freezer at his home. Rothstein told police that sometime back in August, a woman he knows named Marjorie Deal Armstrong called him for help. She said that she had just killed her live-in boyfriend of 10 years, a man named Jim Roden, and she needed help getting rid of the body. Bill Rothstein had known Marjorie Deal Armstrong for many years. They actually dated for quite a long time, years before. So he decides he's going to help her get rid of this body of a man she just killed. He helped her clean up the scene at her house and then took the body and put it in his freezer at his house. Well, now the body's been in his freezer for over a month. And Marjorie wants him to go get a meat grinder and a wood chipper and chip up this frozen body. Rothstein told police that he was terrified of Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Not only had she killed this Jim Roden, but she had killed her boyfriend years before, back in like 1985, and got away with it. She went on trial and was found not guilty because she claimed that she had been abused by this man. So now Rothstein knows for sure that that Marjorie Deal has at least killed two men. He claimed that he was so afraid of her that he tried to kill himself and was unsuccessful. So now he wants help getting away from her and he's going to take whatever punishment he has to have for having the dead body and helping to dispose of evidence just so he can get out from under her thumb. And to prove his point, he gave police a suicide note that he had written when he tried to take his own life. The first line of that suicide note said, this has nothing to do with the Brian Wells case. Huge red flag. Why would Rothstein say anything about the Brian Wells case in his suicide note? This was investigators' first clue that it absolutely did have something to do with the Brian Wells case. Oh, and Bill Rothstein lived right next door to that television transmission tower where Brian Wells delivered the pizzas on that fateful day in August. When police interviewed Bill Rothstein, he acted like he was the smartest man in the room. He used a lot of big words and he 
was purposely very articulate. Does that sound familiar from the behavioral analysis unit's profile of the bomb maker? And there's more. Bill Rostein was a hoarder. His house was disgusting, filthy. And he was a tinkerer. He had a garage with lots of tools and he made all kinds of unique, different things out of metal. So now the FBI wants to know, Bill, why did you write in your suicide note that this had nothing to do with the Brian Wells case? And Rastin's answer was that because it didn't have anything to do with it, and he wanted to make sure that police did not go down that road. Of course, that's completely ridiculous, and the police did not buy it for one second. So now they're investigating Rastin and Marjorie Deal Armstrong for involvement in the collar bomb heist. At the same time, the Pennsylvania State Police are building a case against Marjorie Deal Armstrong for killing James Roden and against Bill Rothstein for assisting in the cleanup of the murder. Police went to Marjorie Deal Armstrong's home to pick her up for an interview about the murder of Jim Roden. And there they found that Marjorie was also a hoarder and filthy. She herself probably hadn't showered in days or weeks and smelled so bad in the patrol car that the police were disgusted. When they spoke to her, Marjorie said that she did not kill Jim Roden and it was probably Bill Rothstein who did it. But she also gave them a couple more names of associates of Rothstein's who might have been complicit in the collar bomb case. So now we have to add a couple more names to this. I know we've already thrown out a lot of names. Marjorie tells police about a man named Ken Barnes. He's a crack dealer and also a hoarder. And she also mentions a man named Floyd Stockton. He had been sleeping on Rothstein's couch because he was on the run from a rape charge. That's a group of upstanding citizens right there. Now, let's take a minute and talk about these people. So I already told you about Bill Rothstein. He's 59 years old. He lives alone, still lives in his parents' house. He has a couple of brothers and sisters who want him to sell his parents' house and split the money with them. Rothstein does not want to do this. He doesn't want to give up his hoard and his little workshop he's got going on. He doesn't want to have to pay bills and get a job because he has never paid for this house ever. He's lived there since his parents lived there. Then there's Ken Barnes. Like I said, he's a crack dealer and he deals a lot with the sex workers in the area. And it comes out later that Brian Wells actually frequented his house quite a bit, not for crack for himself, but he would trade sex for crack with especially one sex worker in particular that he favored. And oftentimes the sex workers would bring their clients right to Ken Barnes home for their quote unquote date. So it was kind of just a one-stop shop. 
The woman would get her crack. The guy would get his sex. And it all happened right there at Ken Barnes' disgusting, filthy hoarder house. Then there's Floyd Stockton. And there's not really a whole lot to say about him other than the fact that he was crashing on Bill Rothstein's couch because he was fleeing an out-of-state rape charge. He had jumped bail on the charge of raping a disabled teenage girl. And I have no idea why somebody would get bail for an offense like that, but apparently he did. So he was wanted somewhere out of Pennsylvania. I want to say Ohio, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And finally, there is Marjorie Deal Armstrong. And this bitch was fucking crazy. Like, if you watch that documentary that I mentioned earlier, Evil Genius, you will see that she was a complete fucking nutcase. And as I mentioned, she had for sure now killed two men that she was involved with. Her ex-husband from years ago had also died under mysterious circumstances. He supposedly fell and hit his head on the coffee table. She took him to the hospital where he died, and somehow she was able to sue the hospital and win for $100,000. Marjorie was quite a sue-happy wackadoo. And that's basically how she lived her life. She never really worked, and she had serious mental health issues, uh, most notably being diagnosed bipolar. And based on her later interviews that were on the documentary, I don't think she could have ever held a job. She's nuts. So around 2003, Marjorie's starting to run out of money and she wants her inheritance. The problem is her father's still alive and her father wanted nothing to do with her. She had been written out of his will. But she still thought that she was entitled to whatever he was going to leave her or whatever his estate had been. So she cooks up this plan that she's going to pay Ken Barnes to kill her father. Ken Barnes says he'll do it for $250,000. So now this group of people, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, Bill Rothstein, Ken Barnes, Floyd Stockton, and Jim Roden all go in on this plot to rob a bank. And now remember, Jim Roden, he's the guy whose body was in Rothstein's freezer. I know there's a lot of names here. It was hard for me to keep them straight. Hopefully I am explaining this in a way that is easy to understand because this is this whole episode has been a bitch, let me tell you. Now this group of wannabe mastermind bank robbers need a patsy. They need somebody who's going to wear this collar bomb that they cooked up in this game. This is where we meet yet another player in this insane game named Jessica Hoopsick. She is... Brian Wells' favorite sex worker out of his long list of prostitutes that he visited. She says to Ken Barnes, yeah, I know a guy. He's a total pushover. He'll totally get in on this plan with you. Before I go any further, I just have to put this out there. 
All of these statements are coming from the conspirators of the bank robbery. And these people are allergic to the truth. They all told varying versions of this inconsistent story throughout the entire investigation. And Brian Wells' involvement has really become a debated and controversial part of this case. Based on all these statements that the investigators compiled, Brian Wells was a willing participant in the robbery up until he realized that the bomb was real. It is speculated that they told him that the bomb was going to be fake and it was just a decoy. But when it came time to actually put on the bomb and go through with the plan, Brian Wells got a bad feeling and decided he did not want any part of this. But they forced him. They beat him up and forced the collar bomb on him and sent him to the bank. So I'm going to try to summarize this. And this is the FBI's official version of what they believe happened based on their investigation. Marjorie Deal Armstrong wanted her father dead so she could get her inheritance. Ken Barnes said that he would carry out the hit for $250,000. Marjorie enlisted this group of losers to help her carry out a plan to rob a bank to get the $250,000 to pay Ken Barnes. The plan they concocted involved a patsy wearing a collar bomb into a bank as a hostage. None of these other guys were willing to wear the bomb because somehow they determined this hostage was going to have to die. Brian Wells was chosen to be this hostage because he just went along with it, because his favorite sex worker asked him to. The FBI believes that days before the heist, Jim Roden wanted out. He decided not to do it and didn't want any part of it and told Marjorie this. And that's why he ended up dead and in Bill Rothstein's freezer. Based on Ken Barnes' statement to investigators, when Brian Wells showed up to deliver the pizzas that day, he didn't know that it was the day of the heist. He did not want to put the collar bomb on his neck, but they beat him up and forced it on him. And you know the rest. He was blown up on live television. Now, Brian Wells' family adamantly disagrees with the FBI's conclusion on this. Brian's siblings believe wholeheartedly that their brother was an innocent victim, that he had nothing to do with the planning and no idea what was going to happen to him that day. Officially, Brian Wells remains to this day listed as an unindicted co-conspirator of the collar bomb heist. So what happened to everybody else? Well, Bill Rothstein died in 2004 of cancer. He was never indicted. He was never brought up on charges. Floyd Stockton was actually given immunity for his testimony against Ken Barnes 
and Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Ken Barnes confessed and pled guilty to his role in the Calabam heist. He was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. He gave an interview and said that he liked it in prison. He was finally clean and off drugs and he felt good. There were people to talk to there and enough to do to keep him busy. And he died in prison of natural causes. Marjorie Deal Armstrong initially pled not guilty to the charge of murder of Jim Roden, but she eventually did plead guilty by reason of mental defect, and she was given seven to ten years. So it was while she was in prison for that crime that the investigation was going on into the collar bomb heist. She adamantly denied any involvement in that crime, but everyone else involved said that she was the mastermind. She was charged with her role in the heist. She pled not guilty. And she actually testified in her own defense. The prosecution was a little bit concerned because she came across as a sympathetic person, someone to be pitied. But in the end, she was convicted and given a sentence of life plus 30 years. And she also has since died in prison. So everyone who was involved in the collar bomb heist is now dead. And we'll never know for sure if Brian Wells really did know what he was getting into when he went to deliver that pizza. Or if he had any involvement in the planning or if he was willing in any way to be a part of this heist. Brian Wells' family has spoke out publicly against the FBI and the investigators and the prosecutors and anyone else who has drag Brian's name through the mud. They believe wholeheartedly that he had nothing to do with it and he was an innocent victim. And they were also very disturbed by the fact that Brian's body was mutilated just to keep the bomb and the locking mechanism intact. They have very publicly criticized all the investigators and all of the agencies involved in this case. Now, there's just one more weird side note that I have to mention. Brian Wells did have one good friend that he worked with. His name was Robert Panetti. Two days after the collar bomb heist, Panetti was also found dead in his apartment. It was ruled to either be a suicide or an accidental overdose because Panetti was known to be a drug addict. But some speculate that he may have had some involvement in the heist as well. And that's why he ended up dead too. As far as the official investigation goes, he had no part in it. But it is pretty suspicious that two guys who worked in the same small pizza shop ended up dead under these weird circumstances. (laughs) 
Holy shit, you guys. This was a complete bear of an episode for me to do. I restarted it twice. I could not get this story out to save my life. I finally just had to spill it the best I could. If you want to know more, I definitely recommend the documentary series on Netflix, Evil Genius. I think it's like four episodes and it goes into a lot more detail than I did. So if there's anything that I talked about that you didn't quite understand, that is the best way to get more information on this case. Tell me what you guys think. Was Brian Wells involved? Or was he just an innocent victim? Is the FBI wrong? Or is Brian Wells' family wrong? Either way, it's a total tragedy. Don't forget to go check out all the new merch at ksomthepod.com. Click on the merch tab. The link's right there to go to the KSOM store. While you're all out enjoying this nice weather, just remember, stay Keystone, my friends. Mm-hmm.